1 Kings chapter 6 this evening, the house of grace, that's the title. God gave instructions concerning building his house, first the tabernacle of Moses, the portable uh, house of God, and then to David, he gave instructions how he wanted his temple built in Jerusalem. Exodus 26 verse 30 God speaking to Moses, you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. And then 1 Chronicles 28, 19, all this said David, Yahweh made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. Now here's where it starts to get interesting. There is an outstanding feature about David's temple. God took the consequences of David's two worst sins, a piece of property, the thrashing floor of Aruna, and a son, a son who would not have been born had it not been for David's sin. Romans 5, verse 20 Where sin abounded, grace did much more. A piece of property and a son. Both connected to disobedience and to sin. And this is the place where God decided he wanted his temple to go. Now you tell me, if our God, if his house is not the house of grace or not. It's not the house of judgment. When you come to church, Paul called the house... The, the, the house of God, the pillar and ground of truth. And that truth is built on love. God is love. Solomon built the temple on the property that David owned, that David bought. Mount Moriah, Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the thrashing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Ornan being the alternate name for Aruna. So Solomon, the son that would not have been born except for his father's great sin. Now this is not in no way, it would be silly to say God is somehow endorsing sin. But God knows how the devil works. And he preaches to his people in a multitude of ways. Moriah. Where long ago, sacrifice of the beloved son was postponed. Genesis 22, verse 2. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And we know the story. God forbade Abraham from slaughtering Isaac. And later in Jeremiah, God will say in reference to those who sacrifice, make human sacrifice, God will say, it was never in my mind to do such a thing. It was a test, of course, and a demonstration at the same time. Romans 6 tells us, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Just the mercy of God shines through the sin of people. People paid dearly for both of David's transgressions. This is the Bible that is telling us that the dwelling place of God is the house of grace. It encourages us 
to serve in spite of our failures, when we repented and confessed our sins, when we're dealing with our sins. Satan wants us to think that failure can make us useless. It's the whole story of Philemon. His name is useful in the eyes of God. The grace of God says, says this to us. This sixth chapter divides the construction of the temple into two sections. From verses 2 through 10, we have the exterior of the building and then the interior, verses 14 through 18. And as much detail as we're given in the record, the scripture concerning the, the temple, it's not enough to reproduce the structure with a guarantee that this is accurate. There's still a lot of little things uh, left out, but it's exciting nonetheless, and I think educational. So let's turn to, let's look at verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of Yahweh. How come we don't have a month of Ziv? Well, it's his fourth year as king, about 967 years, give or take a year, uh, before the coming of Christ. This month, Ziv, is April, May. <clears throat> the Exodus, uh, 480 years earlier, um, you could, uh, well, that would be about 15, well, 1,400 years before the coming of Christ, the Exodus. When we come across discrepancies from between first king, or Kings and Chronicles, numerical discrepancies, I'm going to address that a little bit in, in the next verse, actually. Uh, don't be shaken by those. There are different standards that they use, different methods of calculating. This is a 12 generation of priests that actually comes up with according to the, the names listed in Chronicles. Uh, but anyway, verse 2, now the house of now, the house which King Solomon built for Yahweh, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. Now, we're not going to get dragged down with, with all this cubit stuff. Uh, Rubits is in here somewhere. <laughs> Rubits, cubits, I know that's a stretch, but. So it takes seven and a half years to build the temple. Uh, Twelve and a half or so to the palace of Solomon to be finished. We get that in Second Chronicles 8 also. But where it says uh, its length was 60 cubits. Now the cubit, there were two separate measurements for the cubit. There was the short cubit of about 18 inches, and then there was the long cubit of about 21 inches. Ezekiel seems to go with the longer one in Ezekiel 40. Well, we're going to go with the short cubit, the 18-inch measurement uh, in our calculations. Most scholars take that approach. It, it seems more accurate. But here's uh, an example. Well, here's the Bible explicitly saying there are different standards. Second Chronicles chapter 3, which parallels 1 Kings chapter 6, the building of the temple, says, this is the foundation on which Solomon laid for the building of the house of God. The length was 60 cubits, now parentheses, by cubits according to the former measure and the width 20 cubits. So the chronicler inserts this, yeah, well, there's two standards at least. 
And it's sort of like saying, well, we're not using the metric, we're using the imperial standard. And, and so you have to factor that in when you come across some of the discrepancies. Which one is the author using? Well, in Chronicles, he's nice enough to tell us, but they don't always mention. And you say, well, which one is which? So you just can't get bogged down. So we're going to go with the 18-inch one, as I mentioned. That would make the temple 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 47 uh, feet high, not counting the tower vestibule, which is almost 20 stories. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, this um, is twice the size of the tabernacle of, of Moses. Uh, if you were using the long cubit, then just add 16% to your numbers. If it's really that important to you, uh, have at it. These uh, discrepancies, as I mentioned, uh, they should not frighten us. And uh, we move on now to verse 3. The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. Boy, this is some good reading, I tell you. I had a cup of coffee in the morning. <laughs> uh, anyway, it is, it is exciting when you in the early stages of studying, you try to crack the code. But as you get older, and at least speaking for myself, I say, I've already kind of figured out where this is going, and I'm, I'm satisfied. And so if you have, say, well, I'm not, well, then, you know, get yourself a calculator and, and, and have at it. And um, it would be, it's, a good, it's a good drill to do at least once in your life. Anyway, the vestibule, 15 by 30 feet. And uh, the, the tower, as I mentioned, 20 stories. We get the height of that in Second Chronicles 3, verse 4. Again, I'm, I'm more interested or drawn to the spiritual value of what's being recorded uh, more than the uh, dimensions, unless I can uh, find some spiritual, uh, direct spiritual meaning. Verse 4, And he made for the house windows with beveled frames, likely artistic shutters or lattice, uh, fancy, but necessary. You, you would need ventilation, especially with all that incense burning inside the temple. Um, verse 5, against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around. Against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around it. Storage rooms for salt and oil, wicks and cutlery and logs, administrative areas to track these things, uh, utensils. Did the priests that were working, that were butchering the animals, splattered with blood, did they walk home that way? Or did they have a chamber to go change? Uh, so, you know, the, the, this certainly offered them a lot more assistance, uh, permanent assistance. The fact that they didn't have to haul the ark around anymore uh, is um, significant alone. Verse 6, the, lower, the lowest chambers was five cubits wide, the middle was six wide, and the third was seven wide. For he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened to the walls of the temple. So they were seamless, trying to make a seam the seamless 
picture, which they succeeded in doing, a series of widening ledges going from seven and a half feet to nine feet to ten and a half feet, giving it some dimension so it just wasn't this box, the, the temple, the elevations and the recesses. And so they, they, they put some thought into this. And, and verse 7, the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or, or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. Well, pre-cut limestone, off-site, fabricated, uh, this kind of fabrication, pre-casting, still practiced today, where he says, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the tabernacle while it was being built. Well, that would make the job site relatively quiet, and uh, adding to the uh, sense of sacredness in the work, as opposed to you know constantly hammering all these things, uh, this distinguished the Hebrew worship from heathen worship. It probably is a practice that was not done before like this. And um, this having no iron tool related to the altar, which... Uh, the temple really is the altar. Uh, if you were at a distance, you, you could smell the sacrifices when they were being offered. You couldn't smell the limestone, but you could, that was the, along with the incense, there were fragrances coming from it, and both on the altar, the incense altar and the, the brazen altar, or the bronze altar. Exodus 20, verse 25, tells us that before Israel entered the promised land, God pointed this out concerning the altar. He said, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. And then Joshua, when Joshua is into the, in the promised land now, he cites this. And that, that part that from Exodus is repeated several times by Moses. Well, Joshua brings it up. He says, as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whose stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings. Incidentally, they're going, they did this in the promised land on Mount Ebal. Um, so the, the Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim were the, the two mountains, and the, the, half the tribe went up one mountain and half the other, and they would recite the blessings and they would recite the cursings. The Jewish temple, again, itself was an altar. God's house is the place of sacrifice because you don't benefit from the house of God without the blood, the blood sacrifices, and that is true to this day. Were it not for the blood of Christ, we'd still be in our sin. Well, it is the house of God, the altar, a place where sinful man may approach a holy God, a God who is without sin. And the price of sin uh, is, is high. Sin did violence to the commandment of God's word. And therefore, the re to resolve this, there must be propitiation, satisfaction, Romans 3, verse 25, whom God set forth as propitiation by his blood. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus. Through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, 
Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Jesus is our altar. The Bible tells us that straight out. Hebrews 13, verse 10. Now, remember, Paul is saying to the Jews that the temple spoke of Christ. He has now satisfied the imagery, the emblems, the types. Hebrews 13, 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And Paul is saying, if you're still going to the temple offering sacrifices, you're not benefiting from the blood of Christ because you think it's not enough. Uh, those things are, 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 have been, may, been made obsolete by the perfect offering. And you insult God by bringing an inferior offering and placing it next to the superior altar, uh, offering, which those sacrifices pledged would come and has now come. So iron tools, they were reserved for use upon our altar. Iron tools were used on our altar, Jesus Christ, wielded by Roman soldiers and those spikes that we call nails. So the Jews, they could not use iron on their altars. As I mentioned, it was reserved. No man-made tools to create noise at the tabernacle of Solomon and no debris, less hazards on the ground, no skillful chiseling at God's house, no chiseling at the place of sacrifice and grace. I have here. I don't know, somebody got my name from somewhere and they mailed this to me. This is about chiseling in God's house. Pastors and church leaders, find out how to increase tithing. Well, you get two guys from the Bronx. You put them at the front door. You can increase tithing that way. How to increase tithing while decreasing dependency on it. Then why do we need it? I mean, it just, it, just, it just doesn't may not great on you. You may have no problem with coming to God's house and people begging you for money. Uh, and they put a scripture verse on here which makes it okay. <laughs> Exceedingly abundant above all that we ask. Well, I'm asking you to stop sending me this stuff. Is that exceedingly and abundant above what I'm asking? Anyway, this is modern day chiseling at the house of God. Chiseling out of God's people things that they have no right to, to do. And they, you know, they don't, so many of them, don't, they don't know any better. They've not listened to my sermons. Uh, I mean, they think they're doing good. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to be too hard on them in front of you. Uh, anyway, First Peter chapter 2. I've been saving this for the book of Acts. We'll get it again. It's too good to do just once. So we'll get that later in, in Acts. Uh, anyway, First Peter chapter 2. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Yeah, built on grace. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a royal priesthood. That's why we can go beyond the veil. Two reasons. Christ split the veil and two, we are priests. We, we serve the Lord. Now, granted, only the high priest was allowed to go behind the Jewish veil, but Christ, who is our high priest, has extended this. And we have the access, 
accents, accents. Ay, <laughs> matey. Uh, anyway, uh, I couldn't figure of, uh, I can't do an Irish brogue. So, uh, nor anything else, uh, pretty much. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> here, Solomon, Solomon tried to shape the kingdom using the wisdom God gave him instead of using it the way we would have liked to have seen him use it more. Uh, he began to, you know, make moves, political moves. He became the savvy uh, statesman on the throne. But God, again, wanted to shape the kingdom, not let Solomon do it, although the Lord did not force this. And God, of course, um, he wants to shape our faith, keep the chisels out, keep the man-made hard tools away. Now, in building the temple, wooden tools, block and tackle, made of hemp and, and wood, uh, they would have been used to finish the work, to set the stones in place, but no forged iron tools. And I hope I've been able to communicate the value behind uh, this prohibition. Anyway, verse 8, the doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up by stairs to the middle story, from the middle to the third. The stairways going up to the various chambers. Uh, this the priest would have appreciated, because scaling the wall every day it, uh, would have been a drag. Verse 9, and he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. Well, the description's not even started up yet. There's, it's going to enhance this tremendously. Uh, and, and significantly, as I mentioned, I'm interested in the spiritual values more uh, than some of the details that seem to be uh, <clears throat> above my reaching any great meaning, uh, bringing out a great meaning from the, the numbers. Anyway, sometimes the numbers, of course, do have great value, but they're difficult to connect uh, in this. Uh, verse 10, and he built the side chambers against the entire temple each five cubits high, they were attached to the temple with cedar beams. Well, the ceilings are about seven and a half feet high in this area that he's talking about. And uh, this completes the exterior. Now, I mentioned the numerical uh, spiritual values. Well, they are attainable in many places, but some commentators, they just far, they become far-fetched. I think they read into, you know, and this number means that, and they had no basis for that to come up with that. Uh, Peter's, uh, you know, 158 fish. Well, it means this, and I just think they're stretching it sometimes. But then in other areas, it's, it's, it's right there. You, you, you get it. Well, verse 11, Then the word of Yahweh came to Solomon, saying, Now, before we read this, Before we get to the interior, the Lord has something to say. And the, the historian, I don't know if it was intentional on his part. It certainly was intentional on God's part. He's inserting this. He's interrupting the flow on purpose. We are not told how this invitation and warning was delivered to Solomon, but we're told that we, here it is. And it's a repeat. It echoes what was given uh, in chapter 2, verse 4. So looking at verse 12 now, God is speaking. 
Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. This will make God blameless when he allows the temple to be destroyed both times. And, uh, but there's, of course, more. It's an ominous word that is conditional. The promise is conditional, Solomon. You have to do something, too. You know, we Christians have a saying, you know, we don't get to the place where you want Jesus to do all the dying. Uh, we, you know, the, crucify the flesh. If you walk in my statutes, the, the civil law, if you execute my judgments, if you uphold the law, uh, it's not enough to quote the scripture. Are you actively trying to bring it to life? To keep my commandments, to both spiritual and moral commandments. The Jews, they failed with the spiritual commandments first. The idolatry, which led them into the moral sin. Walk in them, he says. Uh, in other words, live there. John the Baptist, looking at Jesus as he walked, we read in First John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Isn't that profound for us? You know, the just shall live by faith. We walk not by sight. And, and there we, well, we walk by faith looking at the Lamb of God. First John, evidently, it, it never, he never lost sight of this. He, said, he writes in First John chapter 2, verse 6, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Wouldn't it be amazing to, if Jesus were alive today, if he came at this day and age, and he was driving somewhere? Wouldn't you want to be in the car with him? How, I mean, he wouldn't get angry at anybody. Would he do the speed limit exactly? I would have loved to just, you know, maybe ignorance is bliss, and maybe I don't need to know. But anyway, uh, to walk as the Lord walks is mainly with each other. And that's where the real problems are. Um, he says here at the bottom of verse 12, Then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. As I mentioned, echoing 2-4, verse 13. <clears throat> and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. Why does God have to repeat this so much? Because life is booby-trapped. It works against us. The universe is winding down. I mean, you, you don't put, you know, eggs in the refrigerator and come back the next day and there's egg salad. Uh, it just, you know, it, everything just wears down. Sin wears us down. And uh, so God is constantly addressing this. They did forsake God. He says, if, if the children uh, dwell among... And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. But they will forsake him. Now, I had to tone this back because it would turn into a study on Ezekiel. Get it ready, though. Uh, I mean, Ezekiel just lights this up. And here he is a captive in Babylon. And God gives him these outrageous visions and instructions to act out many of his prophecies. He's very dramatic. Lay on your side and do this and draw a map and 
burn the hair and stuff, just all these things. And, and Ezekiel seems that was his character. He's probably a weirdo. And, and, and you know, his personalities go. He's a little strange. But, of course, his prophecies have all come. Well, not all of them. They're coming to pass. Many of them have. None of them failed. Well, Ezekiel tells us, beginning in the sixth chapter, how the people broke God's heart. Ezekiel 6, verse 9. Then those of you... Pause here. I have to go back because I mentioned he's in Babylon. He's a captive. The temple is still up. Nebuchadnezzar came. He took captives away once. He comes back. He takes them again. Finally, he gets fed up. He comes back and he, he destroys the city and takes even more captives. Well, at this point, the temple is still up. And God is giving Ezekiel these visions because the people still think they're gonna, God's going to just send them all back and save Israel. And the prophets, Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, are saying, no, you're going to live in Babylon. I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of love and peace and to give you a future. And you're not going anywhere. Seek the, seek the peace of that land. And that's the Christian uh, mission also, to seek the peace where we are through the gospel. Uh, but uh, So here's Ezekiel, and God says then to, to the prophet. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which they departed from me, and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations because they forsook God. So God withdrew and... The consequences uh, fell upon them. You get to Ezekiel 7, verse 22, and there God says, I will turn my face from them, and they will defile my secret place, for robbers shall enter it and defile it. He's talking about Solomon's temple that's being built, that will be dedicated in chapter, when we get to chapter 8. Chapter 7 is the palace of, of Solomon. Chapter 8 is the dedication of the temple when they bring the ark in. But... In, oh, 200 years thereabout, uh, the temple is going to be destroyed. And God is laying it out so that when it happened, the Jews, this was no accident. We're not the victims of foreign invaders. We're the victims of our abominations against God. And the prophets were telling us. They gave us details, precise little details. And now they're, they're fulfilled. Ezekiel, in the eighth chapter, he's, God says, go down to the temple, Ezekiel. Let me show you what they're doing there. They are abominations, the men and the women. And then by chapter 9, God says, uh, gives Ezekiel a vision of six men. And they have weapons, except one clothed in linen. He's a team leader. He's got an ink horn. And he's going to put a mark on those who sigh and cry over Jerusalem. But those who do not have the mark, they're going to be judged, singled out. Verse 6 of Ezekiel 9, Utterly slay, do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. This is Solomon's temple. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. And he's just very graphic in that section. I've taken out some of it. This is how we preach. We say this to people who are lost. Look, there is going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
there's going to be sorrow and resentment towards God for daring to be God. Tell me why, again, you don't believe that Christ is your Savior. Is there anyone, anyone that even comes close to offering what Christ offers and uh, hold them accountable to their conscience, hopefully? Now, it sounds simple from the pulpit. You can just say, and God and reach the lost. Yeah, yeah, man, it is a war, but it's doable else you wouldn't be here. Verse six, verse 14. <clears throat> so Solomon built the temple and finished it. And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards. From the floor of the temple to the ceiling, he paneled the inside with wood and he covered the floor with the, of the temple with with planks of cypress. Everything's going to get covered in gold. The entire inner sanctuary, the inner sanctuary and the outer sanctuary, the, the holy place, the holy place, all gold. And it's just the nails, the screws, the pegs, the pins to fasten, uh, the, you know, the doors and the hinges, all dipped in gold, or not dipped in gold, probably some of it maybe uh, gold relief, which is a, a skill that was long in existence. You know, you make the, the gold like foil, aluminum foil and you hammer it onto the various uh, objects that you want to cover, gold plate. Second Chronicles 3 verse 9 tells us that even the nails were gold, uh, covered in gold. They weren't gold. Gold is not a strong metal, though it's a heavy one. Uh, those who like heavy metal, are they just talking about lead or, or gold? Because lead is just as heavy. Anyway, um, one of my brothers was always able to acquire things that the legality was questionable. And I don't know, at one point he, he had this lead ingot, it's a bar, that was, you know, minted out like in lead. So if, if I forget verses, it's that lead poisoning from handling this thing as a kid. And it was very heavy. It wasn't that big, like, a, you know, twice the size of a common stick of butter. And uh, gold, I kind of lost my thought, but I can say this. I used to unload gold at Kennedy Airport from Air Argentina. would bring it in every Tuesday at 1030. And that little box was so heavy, two of us on our, you know, our hands, you know, back of us, shoving it with our feet just to get this thing 10 feet out the door of the belly of the plane onto the conveyor belt. Then four men had to lift it off the conveyor belt into the armored truck. It really has nothing much to do with anything I'm talking about except these flashbacks. Verse 16 was they built uh, the 20 cubit room at the rear of the temple from the floor to the ceiling, the cedar boards, he built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. So the holy place is 30 feet square, wide, long, and tall. This gives it about 15 feet of loft space as you're standing, you know, and, uh, by the, the Ark of the Covenant. Gold overlaid the cedar boards, and a wainscot pattern, it seems, also, um, verse 6, we'll come back to this, verse 17, and in front of the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. So the holy place where the golden incense altar stood, 60 
feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. So you had the, the outer sanctuary where the lampstand was, the incense altar that was in gold to the showbread, and then the inner sanctuary separated by a curtain in this temple by doors also, doors and curtains. I'll give you that verse, uh, maybe if I'm in the mood. <laughs> I'll give it to you verse in a little while. Verse 18. The inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds. That means or- <laughs> there were ornamental friendly guys' faces. <laughs> There's the buds. <laughs> hey, bud. Anyway, covered with ornamental buds. <laughs> You'll never see that again. Read that the same way again. Ornamental buds. <laughs> Open flowers, all was cedar. Uh, there was no stone to be seen. See those little statements? They're like zingers, you know, but they're, they're, they're blessings. They're the opposite of zingers. You know somebody, you, you talk to them, and they just have to always lead you with a snide remark. You just, you know, that guy. Just uh, always say something to ruin it. Well, this is the other way around. Always something to make you go, hmm, there's something there. Okay, the temple with the cedar, the carved ornaments, we got that. Uh, remember, David designed this as according to the vision given to him by God or the inspiration. But there was no stone to be seen. Well, sandstone's not unattractive. Why? Well, these verses come to mind for me. Ezekiel, again, 36, this time, verse 26. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Matthew 13. Some fell on the stony places where they did not have much earth and they immediately sprang up. But because they had no depth of earth, they withered away. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'm saying this little feature just for me triggered... In my memory, man, there's verses that talk about stone uh, working against us uh, in this context. Because, of course, we have the foundation and the rock of Christ. So you have, you have to balance it. But Second Corinthians 3, verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is... The heart. And so you have this tabernacle, this temple, and uh, this structure, permanent structure, not portable like Moses. And God is saying, I need the stone for the foundation, but everything has to be in its place. Inside, I want the beauty and the glory. And on the outside or beneath it, I want uh, the, 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 the strength. But there's more. Verse 19. And he prepared in the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. Now, the Ark is not here yet. That will not happen until chapter 8, the first verse, that's the dedication. But this room, this Holy of Holies, is not now a Holy of Holy place in the truest sense. It's an empty space until the Ark arrives. Then it becomes the most holy place because the Ark is is the presence of God to the people, saying, I am with you. The Shekinah departs, and Ezekiel talks about that. 
in chapter 10 of, of his prophecy. And it's a reluctant departure. At first he lifts off the cherubim. Then he goes by the threshold of the door. Then he crosses over the brook. And it's this, this sad distancing of God having to leave the people who want nothing to do with him. And those who accuse God of, you know, deism, just being, you know, abandoning the planet, not being, they don't understand. So here, uh, <clears throat> the sanctuary where the ark is going to go is just an empty space until the presence of God comes. And that presence of God will depart because of their apostasy. So much to think about. You know, the, if you're going through this in your devotional time, at least for me, these are the things that make you say, I, you know, i got to think about this. Verse 20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. Eleven times in this chapter we read the word gold, and ten times we read of that gold being overlaid. You saw no wood. The priest that was in the holy place and the holiest of holies, when he looked around, he did not see wood. He saw gold. God never sees me apart from his son, the king. Gold is the emblem of royalty. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see the sinful nature that is underneath what has been made valuable by the blood of the Lamb. And thank God it is that way. When, when Jesus looked at Peter and said, tonight you will, you will deny me three times, he saw beyond Peter, Peter's failure. Because he says to him, when you return, strengthen your brothers. And we see in Acts chapter 2, Peter... The one who failed miserably is leading, you know, multitudes to Christ. Peter didn't even know what to do with them. He preached a sermon so good, he didn't know how to finish this thing. So God interfered. Well, not interfered, but intervened. And he had the people say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter was saying, yeah, you know, I couldn't just quite close it. I thank you. All right, so... Uh, I say that because we don't know this naturally. You lead, you know, you preach to Christ, you refute arguments, and you have to also know, you want to get them to the point where you say, repent, that times of refreshing may come. And I, I think that, you know, and I, you think of the tabernacle, it's this way with Moses' tabernacle, uh, in many ways also, but when you, this whole room was just all gold, but it was not a museum. It was not a social center. You couldn't go see it. Only the priest got to see this, uh, or the Levites. Verse 21, so Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. Verse 22 now, the whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. So he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. That's the golden incense altar to distinguish it from the bronze uh, sacrificial altar where the blood offerings were outside the temple would take place. And that was a big deal because King um, Uzziah tried to offer incense on that and the priests withstood him. They were going to die before they let him come in there and offer incense which was reserved for the priest. Uh, so, a 
Of course, he was smitten with leprosy. It's, it's, you know, the father of John the Baptist is ministering on the incense altar when the angel appears to him. Well, verse 22. uh, The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. I, I did read that. Well, I'm almost done. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was on the inner sanctuary. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 3, in the 8th verse, tells us it's about 28 tons of, um, 24 tons of gold. By today's standards, that's over $11 billion worth of gold. Uh, again, God uses this stuff like asphalt up in heaven, so he's like, I, don't, I, I just make it. When I want it, I just call it into being. Verse 20, you know the Russians in the 50s, I think it was the 50s, the Soviets, they thought that uh, the road atlas, the American road atlas was propaganda. Nobody could have that, that many roads asphalted leading to so many places and and so they would tell their people, that's just propaganda. The Americans can't do that. Um, but it was real. I don't know where those gold roads lead in heaven. Um, I don't know. I'm going to think of some funny things to say, but I'm not going to say them. And verse 23. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Well, these things were beasts by, you know, we would say. The cherubim, what do they speak of? Man's failure and God's solution. And God's delay of the solution. That's what the cherubim speak to us about. Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve sinned. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim at the east. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Yeah, the letter E makes me do that. (coughs) At the east end of the Garden of Eden. And a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, God is saying, I'm serious about this. I, I'm, I'm going to provide a solution, but I do not want you coming back into this garden and eat of the tree of uh, life that will, you won't die. You'll, you'll, you'll live in your doomed state. And God made sure he put a halt to that, but look how long it's been before the ultimate com- the, the completion in humanity. So, again, the cherubim, the cherubim to me, They speak of man's failure and God's determination to implement his solution and take his time doing it. He is um, not going to be rushed in his perfections. Verse 24, or reason why, one reason why, is because it's not all about one generation. Verse 24, one wing of the cherubim was five cubits, the other wing of the cherubs uh, five, uh, ten from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other, And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. Verse 26, the height of the cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. So these spiritual beings, the cherubim, 15 feet high, 15 feet wide with the wingspan, they're not to be confused with the cherubim that are on the mercy seat of the ark. The ark is not yet in the room. There will be four emblems of cherubim in the Holy of Holies, not to mention the ones that are on uh, the curtains. 
So, the, again, that emphasis of the cherubim, it, it must mean something more than just, hey, there's some other uh, uh, extraterrestrial beings. Do I believe on life uh, other than life on earth? Of course I do. Life in heaven. Uh, anyway, uh, verse 27. Then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out their wings of the cherubim so that the wing of one touched the wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. In verse 28, he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Uh, they're in the middle of the room, not the center, about 15 feet deep into the room. Uh, verse 29, I will pause to say, you know, when you cover this, or I covered this in Exodus, it's, you have a, you, other applications. You, you can't exhaust it. It's so much. Verse 29, Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Verse 30, And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and the outer sanctuaries. So... Second Chronicles 3, in its account of this, he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty. And yet again, this was not open to the public. And what, how profound, what are the meanings of this? You know, that God would lavish the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary with gold and all of this art work, the cedar wood, and yet uh, it was not a social center. The people had to take by faith that God was more valuable <clears throat> than anything that could go into a physical structure. Uh, anyway, verse 31. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood and lintel on the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. Verse 32 the two doors were of olive wood, and he carved them on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, overlaid them with gold. And he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So the doors, uh, it, to go into the holy place, about six foot high. The doors, uh, other to go into the not as holy place, would be seven and a half feet. But the entrance to the inner sanctuary had two doors made of olive wood. And the veil or, or curtain hung there in addition. You get that from Second Chronicles 3, verse 14. And uh, that would shield the ark from uh, someone peeking in. One of the priests who was not high priest would might want to, I just want a little look. And it would be closed. God was saying, I'm pretty serious about this. Verse 33 so for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. Verse 34, and the two doors of, uh, were of cypress wood, two panels comprised of one folding door, two panels, trying to make it interesting, Compri dramatic reading, comprised of other, uh, the other folding door. So these doors from the vestibule into the holy place were... Uh, Cypress wood with um, olive at the doorpost. Uh, this would then enter, uh, go to the outside, verse 35. Then he carved cherubim, palm trees, 
and opened flowers on them and overlaid them with gold applied evenly on the carved work. And we have no idea, really. I mean, we have an idea what the cherubim looked like, but wouldn't you love to see what the Jews... It had to be handed down, I don't know, from Adam. Adam's to Eve were the first humans to see a cherubim, uh, actually, and the others saw them in visions. Um, yeah, that'd be pretty interesting. No visions have been, uh, these manifestations held back because everybody has their camera with them. And <laughs> anyway, verse 35, then he carved cherubim, palm trees, flowers. You got it. He built the inner court, verse 36, with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. And this is the court, what we know of the priests, and we get that from 4.9 in Second Chronicles, verse 37. In the fourth year of the... The foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid in the month of Ziv, verse 38. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. And he's rounding off the number here. They're not always trying to be, uh, you know, to the day. Uh, but the foundation and the furnishings and the structure is complete. This is October, November now, seven years from the beginning. All of it will be destroyed uh, in, well, about 400 years, thereabout, a little less, because they blatantly disrespected God. They incorporated, and this is the close of the message tonight, they incorporated gods made by other people. The idolatrous Jews, they were not even creative enough to make up their own gods. They had to import them. Doesn't that tell you something? I mean, what, what is that? And it's a danger that we all have to watch, the church has to watch that she doesn't look to the world to be able to conduct business as the, the church, the called out ones. They imported these gods from Gentiles. Well, David, we'll close with this verse. <clears throat> this is what he was talking about when he said, through your precepts, Psalm 119, verse 104, I get understanding. Through your rules of life, I get it. I can figure it out because you've, you've told, you've given me the map. And then David adds, therefore, I hate every false way. That psalm, and I believe, I again, hold David wrote Psalm 119. That's my, my view. Um, the Jews had that verse. They just did not avail themselves of it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, a lot to think about. Uh, for me, I really enjoy the part about when you look at us, you see beyond us. You see your son, Jesus Christ. I like so much of what is meant by the cherubim. You protecting us from ourselves and taking your time to do it. But you have a solution that makes it all worthwhile. By faith, Lord, we receive these things. May you get us all home safely, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.